John chapter 4. I'm going to read to you, you can follow with me, verse 23 and verse 24. Uh, we'll get the whole story, but I just want to start with just reading those verses. They're powerful verses. These are like some of the, one of the most powerful things that Jesus ever said, in my opinion. And, and I, I just want to, we want to kick this around this morning. 4.23 and 24 says this, But the hour is coming, it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And Father, we thank You so much for Your Word this morning, and I would pray, God, that as we just bow our hearts and prepare our hearts, God, that You would allow us to really hear You speak to us individually as a church, Lord, it's kind of a heavy thing you said when we break it down. So we, we don't want to take this lightly, but we also know we need your spirit to do the work in our heart. And so we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I was telling first service, you know, there are certain passages that you read, um, specifically certain things that Jesus will say. I mean, obviously everything Jesus says is important. I mean, amen? You better amen that or you have to leave, actually. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but there are certain things that he says that when you read them, um, they cause you to kind of sit up in your chair, to kind of snap to you know, your attention. Um, and this is one of those passages for me. This is one of those, it doesn't really matter how many times I've read it. This is a familiar passage. Many, many of us are familiar with it. But man, when I read this passage, it's these two verses, actually specifically verse 24, that always, on one level or another, creates this response in me, and I think it's designed that way, that Jesus wanted to elicit a response, because what he's actually saying is heavy, and what he's actually saying is one of those things that is potentially a humongous game changer in your life and in my life. The thing that, that you know, I'll give you three words, just three individual words as to why, in way of introduction, as to why it grabs my attention because Jesus uses, first of all, he uses the word true. Okay, he's talking about worship, and we're going to talk about worship. And in relation to worship, he says the true worshipers. True meaning genuine, meaning real, meaning acceptable. And here's my point. If Jesus says there's true worshipers, that means there's what? False worshipers. He said he's qualifying it, true worshipers. So that means that there's something that's true and there's something that's not true. So that grabs my attention. The next thing that grabs my attention is the word seeking. Because in this idea of true worshipers, Jesus himself says the Father is actively seeking those kind of worshipers. What kind? True worshipers. Now, a little interesting thing about that word seeking, not that you need to know this or that we're more spiritual because we know this word, but the Greek word for seeking is zateo, and it's a colorful, colorful word. It means to find, to obtain, or to demand, or to require. And it's in the present active indicative. In other words, it's in the present tense, meaning the Father is presently and continually looking and the mood of that word in the Greek is with intensity. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said this. The Son of Man came to seek and save what? The lost. Jesus is, he's not like passively like, oh, I hope there's some lost people. You know, he's like, I'm, I'm trying to save lost people. It's the same word that when Jesus did the parable of, the, of the, the shepherd with the 99 sheep that were there, but the one got away. What does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99, and he seeks after the one, right? Same word. Same word when the woman, same kind of in that group of parables where she loses the coin, and she turns the house upside down trying to find that coin. Another time he uses that word, he says this. Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. That's actually the same word as seeking. There's a requirement. So what is he saying? God is seeking, no requiring that, that true worshipers worship him, that they have to be true worshipers. That's heavy. He's looking. 
And guys, I'll just pause here for a second while I beat around the bush. To me, this is, we're going to come right back here at the end because to me, this is the heartbeat of the sermon. But then lastly, just again in way of introduction, he says, true worshipers, I'm seeking worshipers that are true. And he says, and any who wants to come to me must, the other word, must. That means, that's a qualifier. It means if there's no like maybe, there's no like other way around, it's like no. God is saying, Jesus, the Christ, says, my father says, if you want to worship you, me, you must come this way. There's only one way to come. Now, why is that so heavy? Because listen, if Jesus is saying that the Father is looking for true worshipers and that if they're true worshipers, they must come to him in this certain way, which is in spirit and in truth, and we'll talk about that, we better sit up and pay attention. This is one of those sermons that for me is a real heart check. It's time to take an evaluation because this is heavy. If he's saying that the only kind of worshipers that are accepted by God are these that are in spirit and truth and the rest are not true worshipers, guys, that means it's possible to have churches full of people that think they're doing religious activity, but if they're not worshiping in spirit and truth, at the end of the day, it counts for nothing. That's a heavy statement. That's not very politically correct or inclusive in our culture. That, that's heavy. Let's take a look at this because, like I said, um, this is not one of those things to gloss over or to play games with. This is a very emphatic, very deliberate statement that Jesus makes. Now, before we get all heavy about it, we also need to understand this. It's wonderful. What Jesus is communicating is absolutely wonderful wonderful. Now, what I want to do, we're going to come back to that idea, but let's get the story first. How many of you guys, by just a show of hands, curiosity, how many of you guys have read John 4 in your life? Probably most of us. If you've been around church, churchiness or church culture or Sunday school, I mean, you've been around John 4. It's, it's a familiar passage, but for the sake of those of us who maybe aren't that familiar or just to kind of bring it up again, let me go through the story. And for time's sake, I'm going to tell the story. I'm not going to really read it, but here's the thing. So Jesus, this is towards the beginning of his ministry. He's been down in Jerusalem, the capital, and now he's making his way back north to his hometown, Capernaum, that area, which is up in the Galilee, if you can picture a map of Israel. And so to get there, he's got to obviously travel north. But it's interesting because as he's getting ready to travel, he says something to this effect, I must go through Samaria. Now, Samaria is in that middle part in between Judah and Galilee. And what's interesting, though, that's where the Samaritans lived. But no self-respecting Jewish rabbi would ever actually travel, even though it was the short, shortest route, would travel through Samaria because there was this really deep-seated, old, hundreds of years old um, prejudice of the Samaritans and the Jews. There was a rift between those two people groups and they just didn't like each other. And we can, you know, you can do your reading on that all you want. It finds its origin back when the um, Assyrians came in and invaded the 10 northern tribes, if you remember that in your Bible history. They not only pulled the Jews out, not all of them, but a lot of them, but then they inserted their people and then it became kind of a mixed culture, which in the eyes of the purebred, sorry for putting it that way, Jew, that was like an abomination. And so they were like, like step-cousins to the Jews. They didn't look at them as equals. And, and, and the, the Samaritans looked at the Jews as like, you know, stuck up, whatever. And so there was this real deep rift. All that to say, most people would avoid coming in contact with the Samaritans. I love the fact that Jesus is like, I need to go through Samaria because he had an appointment, right? So they get into Samaria. They come to this well. They're all tired. Jesus sits down. The guys go to Taco Bell to get some food. Um, Jesus stays at the well. He's sitting there. His 12 o'clock shows up. A woman who comes by herself at noon to draw water from the well. And at first glance, it doesn't really seem to be all that significant. But it really is. You know, when you start to dive into the culture a little bit, you realize noon is the heat of the day. And it's not the time traditionally that women would come to draw water from the well. And she's by herself, which is also a very untraditional thing to do because they would come together as a community and draw water together. So it's kind of curious that this woman is A, by herself, and B, at that time of day, and yet she's right on time because there's Jesus waiting for her. And you guys remember they have this dialogue. Jesus engages her, which totally trips her out because it's against all the, the cultural stuff of the day. Um, hey, can I have a drink? How is it that you, being a Jewish man 
and you're asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink, and Jesus comes back. You guys probably remember a lot of this. If you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I'd give you living water. Oh, living water. What are you, better than our uh, forefathers who drank from this well? Listen, if you drink from this well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you'll never thirst. You guys remember that? What's Jesus doing? He's talking to her on a spiritual plane. He's trying to communicate, I am the source of living water, not physical water, but living water. And when you have the Spirit of God come into you, man, it will satisfy the deepest thirst of your soul. And she's thinking about like, no, I'm just thirsty. I want some water. She's not connecting. They're like on different planes, right? And so she kind of says back kind of cavalier like, wow, I wish I could get some of this water so I don't have to keep coming to this dumb well. At that point, Jesus puts the clutch in. He shifts gears to get her attention. I always imagine kind of a long pause. Why, why don't you go call your husband? Maybe another long pause. Gears turning. Uh, I'm not married. And in my mind's eye, I always see Jesus kind of crack a half smile like, that was a good answer. You're right. You're not married. I don't envision him saying, you're not married, you filthy woman. You know, I don't think it was that at all. I think he just says, you're right, you're not married. But you have been married five times. And you're currently living with a man who's not your husband. You're living in sin. And that got her attention in a hurry. You know, a lot of people speculate that maybe the reason that she was there by herself is because she'd been married five times and maybe she's a kind of a loose, immoral woman. I tend to disagree with that only because that culture is a very much a shame on her society. And it, it was probably more likely that she had been kicked to the curb five times by five different men and probably kind of given up on the whole thing with no honor left, no dignity left and she's living with this guy and I love the fact that in that honor shame society Jesus doesn't shame her further and gets her attention though he doesn't beat her on the bush he tells the truth but all of a sudden she's paying attention and it's at this point the whole conversation changes because listen it says in verse 19 the woman said to him sir I perceive that you're a prophet definitely a change of, of focus oh why don't you go get some water I don't have to drink this water go to your husband I'm not married yeah you've been married five times you're living with a guy you're a prophet. <laughs> Gets her attention real quick. Now notice what she does. This is fascinating. The next thing out of her mouth is she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, probably pointing to Mount Gerizim. But you, that is Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem you will worship the Father you know, you worship and you do not know what, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it's now here that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Stick with me, but what happens here is as soon as she recognizes this is a godly man, she changes it and brings up a theological question. Okay, I got a question for you, prophet. Our fathers tell us that Mount Gerizim is the right place to worship. And the Samaritan religion was like this tweak of, the, of, the, of Judaism, and they had changed locations and changed stuff, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But she says, my fathers say we're supposed to worship here. You Jews say, no, it's in Jerusalem. Where's the place that we're supposed to worship? Now, at this point, many, many Bible scholars and, and respected ones at that, whom I just respectfully disagree with, say that, She's trying to dot, she's, the reason she brings up that theological debate is to somehow sidetrack Jesus from the whole I've been married five times issue. I disagree with that. See, I believe what's really happening is this is a broken woman who the moment she realizes she's in the presence of a man who's a godly man, and he's not condemning, but he's clearly a man of God. I believe what she's saying is, okay, then I got a question for you. How do I find God? Where do I go to worship God? Am I supposed to go to Mount Gerizim where they tell me I'm supposed to go? Or am I supposed to go to Jerusalem? Where, where's, where's a person supposed to go if they really want to worship God? See, I believe she was sincere. And Jesus said, I got, I, I'm telling you something. The time is coming. Actually, it's right now where it's no longer about here or there. Now, by the way, notice what he does. Now, he, sa he does clear the situation. He says, 
But you Samaritans, you, you don't know what you're doing. You're doing it wrong. The Jews are actually doing it right because they're sticking to the word of God. But then he kind of puts that aside and says, but the time is coming and is now here that it's not going to be about what mountain you go to anymore because God is now looking for true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth, not in temples and on mountains and on, at seasonal times, but all the time in spirit and in truth. Amen? And that's where we, we pick up our, our topic, this topic of worship. I love this. He says, it's not about, it's changing. It's not going to be about these formalities anymore. It's not going to be about locations anymore. It's going to be on a way deeper level. It's going to be in spirit and in truth. And then we go back again to that statement. He says, anyone who wants to worship the Father must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the whole, would you agree with me that if, we're, if you're tracking logically with me, then everything kind of hinges on understanding what spirit and truth means? Because if we're going to worship in a way that is acceptable to the Father, and that is in spirit and truth, we need to understand what that means. Amen? Yes or no? Okay, so we'll get there. But before we get there, I just want to say a couple of words about worship in general, about worship. It's a huge topic, so I just want to touch on a couple little things. But worship, did you know that every single human being is made to worship? There's no tribe, there's no culture, there's never been an era in world history where there's a place on this planet where the people of this planet don't worship in some way, shape, or form. Have you guys ever thought about that? We're built to worship. It's ingrained into us. I love how A.W. Tozer puts it. He says, worship is the normal employment of human beings. It is something that is built into the human nature. And scripturally, I think that's backed up. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says something to the effect of that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. Part of what that means is that in the heart and the soul of a human being, eternity is there, meaning there is a longing for something eternal. There is, a, there is this sense that there's something more. I think it was C.S. Lewis that talks about, there, you know, as human beings, we're the only ones that do that. You, you know, the goldfish is not swimming around in the bowl saying, what's beyond the water? But we do. We say, this is beautiful and creation is great, but there's something more. There's something greater. And there's this longing in every single human being that wants to connect with his or her creator, that wants to worship his or her creator. Does that make sense? And we will worship. Human beings were built to worship. It's in us to worship. And we will worship. But if we don't worship God, we'll just end up worshiping something that God made. And the scriptures bear that out as well. I, I refer you to Romans chapter uh, 1 where Paul talks about when we reject God, when we don't thank God or acknowledge God, we profess ourselves to be wise, but we become fools and we substitute the creation for the creator. We start worshiping the stuff he made instead of him. But make no mistake, we're built to worship. We're going to worship. It's part of who we are. But that raises the question, too, well, what is worship? What is worship? And again, we could spend a ton of time on this, but we're not going to. We'll just talk about it a little bit. But what is worship? I mean, biblically, what is worship? To me, it's one of those things that's like, well, you know, it's, it's simple until you try to explain it to somebody. What's worship? Oh, yeah, you know, it's worship. It's when you do the, um, and then you rate, and then you go to, and then you find yourself, and then you express, it's, you know, it's worship. It's easy until you try to explain it. You know, there's no real clear biblical definition of worship. There's lots of examples. There's words uh, that, that describe worship. There's different words for worship itself. Um, there's a Hebrew word for worship, which, which is shakah, and that carries the idea of bowing down. There's, I think, three or four Greek words for worship. The most used one, used about 80 times, um, is proskeneo. Proskuneo. It's a compound word, and it basically means to bow down and kiss. So all of the words for worship, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, Aramaic, all of those words all describe something to the effect of bowing down or prostrating yourself or kissing or subjugating yourself. And the visual for that is kind of think of like, you know, a king sitting on a throne and royal subjects bowing down. 
But in our case, it's the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the creator of the universe and God Almighty. And worship carries then this idea at its core of us as his creation, venerating him and honoring him and acknowledging him and thanking him and subjugating ourselves to him and bowing in him. And does, that, does that ring a bell? Does that make sense? So that's kind of the core of this idea of worship. Now, how worship is expressed, man, we, it's all over the board. It, can, it, it looks a lot of different ways. You know, when we say worship, a lot of times we think, oh, it's the three to five songs we do before a service on a Sunday. Well, that is an acceptable or can be a very acceptable way of worshiping God, but I hope you understand that all of worship is not contained in the three to five songs we do on a Sunday. Does that make sense? Worship is more, listen, Worship has way more to do with an attitude of the heart than a, a formality or a way of expressing it. And you can express worship in lots of different ways. Singing, praising, thanking. All of these are biblical ways. Expressing by lifting your hands to the Lord. Acceptable biblical way of worship. Dancing. David danced in his underwear before God. And if you'd like to do that, please don't do it here. You will be escorted out. But man, feel free to do it at your house. Get nuts. You know, go for it. Express yourself. So, listen, worship is that recognition and expression and response to who God is expressed in many different ways. Singing, praising, thanking, dancing, shouting, you know, whatever. Serving, giving. There's all kinds of ways. It can all be worship because worship has way, do, to, way more to do with the posture of your heart than the posture of your body. Does that make sense? So that's maybe just a touch on, on, on what worship um, is. Ultimately, and I, I think this is a, an important point, I don't want to move on without saying it, is that I think Paul, the apostle, nailed it in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Therefore, beloved brethren, in light of all of the mercies of God, the first 11 chapters of Romans, speaking of justification by faith and Jesus being our redemption, all the theological truths of the first 11 chapters, he says, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, I beg you, present your bodies as living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship, is what it literally means in the Greek. Did you catch that? The most reasonable thing we can do in light of all who God is and all that God has done, the most reasonable thing we can do is lay our lives completely at his feet and live lives of worship unto him. Amen? So this is great when you start grabbing a hold of that because you realize worship is way more than something we go do. We're not supposed to necessarily just go to worship services. Our life is to be a worship service. And when you get this, everything you do can be worship. Your work can be worship. Changing poopy diapers in the nursery can be worship. Washing dishes can be worship. You guys ever heard of Brother Lawrence? I, I brought this up Wednesday night. He was a monk, you know, a generation or two ago, and he, he uh, actually longer than that, and he was in this monastery. I'm not making a case for being a monk. I'm just saying he was a great example. And his whole thing was he was just always trying to be cognizant of God's presence with him. And because of that, everything he did was worship. You know what his job was at the monastery? He was a dishwasher. He'd wash dishes. People would come from all over and drive to the monastery, not drive, but they would walk to the monastery just to watch him wash dishes. Watch him wash dishes. Why? Because he did it as unto the Lord as an act of worship, and there was something so joyful about the way he washed dishes. People were like, what's up with that guy? It just reminds me of my wife. That's exactly how she does dishes. Amazing. Such a godly woman. But the point is, is that the ultimate way of worshiping God is, is not giving a song here or service there. It's giving a life to him, a life of worship. Amen? Okay, with that in place, let's just kind of talk a little bit before we circle back and end this thing. I want to talk about this idea. We have to uh, talk about what, what did Jesus mean when he said worship in spirit? In truth, true worshipers, you must worship, Jesus said. Father's looking for men and women who worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? You know, I was thinking about this. I got runner-up for a lot of things in high school, which just means I wasn't really great at anything. I was just kind of good at a lot of things. So in the yearbook, I got like runner-up, like runner-up class clown, true story. Um, runner-up this and that. 
I got runner-up for most, most school spirit. You're welcome. I was that guy, face painted. You know, I couldn't play football, so I'm just like the rally guy, whatever. So, I mean, I was that nerd. But, you know, it's not really talking about when, it, when Jesus says worship in spirit. It's not like, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. It, it's not that. I'm sure that's good. But I think it's deeper than that. Let's go back to the story of the Samaritan for a minute. What was the issue? She was wanting to worship God. She was wanting to know, where do I find God? What's the proper procedure and location that I go to to worship God? And what did Jesus blow her mind with? It's changing. It's not going to be about locations anymore and times or seasons or formalities or, you know, or religious duties. He says, it's going to be this. True worship is going to be a spiritual thing. You have to worship in spirit. Now, again, what does that mean? I think at its core it means this, you guys, listen. It means we are engaging with God, with our spirit, that we're connecting with God on a spiritual level, that it's from the heart, that it's acceptable to Him, that at the core of our being we're connecting with Him, and we're, we're doing it in spirit. Now, let me say this because this is all important, and, and don't lose me. Did you realize that that means you cannot, a person cannot worship God in a way that is acceptable to God unless first he or she has been born again by the Spirit of God? Think about that. You can't actually worship God in a way that's acceptable to God unless you're born of the Spirit of God. Now let me qualify that or back it up a little bit. What do you mean? Are you telling me that there's all these sincere people and they're worshiping God and they're doing this, but if they're not born again, they're not connecting with God on the spiritual level? That's exactly what I'm saying. And that's a scary thought. Again, it goes back to what I said earlier. That means there can be whole religions and whole groups and churches of people that are putting off a form of godliness or rituals or acts but if they're not born of the spirit of god they're not worshiping in spirit and thus it's not acceptable to god why do we have to be born again i don't even know if i like that term born again it sounds kind of hokey we'll get used to it jesus coined that phrase so you need to kind of just deal with that one and and learn to like that phrase but here's the thing we cannot worship in spirit until we're born of the spirit because the Bible teaches us clearly that until we're born again, every single human being is spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, you who are dead in your trespasses and sins. When you think of death in the Bible, this might help you. Um, never, don't think of like annihilation, like death meaning annihilation. Death in the Bible is not so much annihilation or obliteration, it's separation. So if my body falls down dead and my soul leaves my body, it's separated from my body so my body's dead. There's a separation. And it's the same thing spiritually. It's not like you don't have a spirit or I don't have a spirit. But when we're born into this world, we have a sinful nature. We're born with a sinful nature and we've all sinned. And because of our sin, we are separated from the Spirit of God. We are separated from the Father. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, right? So that's the big issue. So until that is that breach is reconnected, I cannot connect with my spirit to the Father. That's why Jesus came, you guys. That's why God sent the Son. He loved us so much. He sent his only Son. And when Jesus was here, listen, when he died on the cross, he wasn't dying for his own sin. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was pure. Jesus was dying vicariously for you and I. He took the sin off of my shoulders and he put it onto his shoulders and he died in my place for my filth on the cross and for your filth and for your sin. And because he died and then raised from the dead, the sacrifice is accepted. All of our sin is paid for. Oh, let's just pause there. All of our sin is paid for by Jesus on the cross. If you can't amen that, you're dead. And he raised from the dead, and it's all true. And if any man, any woman, any boy, any girl expresses faith to God and says, I believe that I'm a sinner, but you died for my sin, and I want to receive your free gift of salvation that you purchased for me on the cross, the moment a person does that, you are born of the Spirit. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. No man comes to the Father, you know, unless he's born again or born of the Spirit. 
So that's when this whole thing can start. So the moment you or I or anyone is born of the Spirit, now we are connected to the Father, and now we can respond to all who He is and all what He's done in acts of worship and praise and adoration that are acceptable to Him. Amen? Does that make sense? So it all starts there. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. So the first question we have to ask, you need to ask right now, is this. If, if God is looking for acceptable worship in those who are worshiping in spirit and truth, and to worship in spirit, you first and foremost have to be born of the spirit. Are you born of the spirit? Are you saved? Are you born again? Are you a Christian? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you do good deeds. I'm not asking if you went to catechism. I'm not asking if you got baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church. I'm asking, have you personally put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? And if you have, you are born of the Spirit, and you are able to connect with the the Father in that way, and you're able to offer worship that is acceptable to Him. Amen? That means now, when you sing... When you praise, when you thank, when you pray, when you read your Bible, when you work, when you serve, and when you give, if the attitude of your heart is right and you're engaging with the Lord, it can all be acceptable worship to Him. And that is what the Father's looking for. See, the Old Testament was all about, you know, a place, the temple, a priest, and sacrifices, and He's wiped all that away and said, no longer is it going to a place, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, I'm coming into you. You don't need a priest. Jesus is the great high priest. And you don't have to bring, aren't you guys glad we don't have to bring like lambs and goats and stuff to church? That would be such a bummer. Until we barbecued them, I mean, that part would be great, but what a bloody mess. We're not supposed to bring those things because Jesus was the once and for all Lamb of God who was slain for all of our sin. What we bring is spiritual sacrifices, Peter says. Thanks and praise. You guys get the point. But what I want to say before we leave this is that, okay, it starts with being born of the Spirit, but now that you're born of the Spirit, let me ask you this. Are you offering real worship to God from your spirit? Do you connect with God? Because even though we're born again, we still very much can run the risk, the fatal error of turning church and turning worship, kind of rolling back the clock and making it what it was. We can turn it into dead ritualism real easy if we're not careful. We can just go through formality if we're not careful. Well, not us. I mean, we're Calvary Chapel. We're not very formal about anything. But we're pretty religious in our non-formality. We're pretty ritualistic in our non-ritualism. Guys, don't kid yourself. Just because we wear Aloha shirts and whatever and shorts to church doesn't mean that we're always just free and in the spirit. We can become just as rigid and religious as anybody in any day and age that's ever lived. And we can turn our non-formal approach into a religious approach. And we can begin to think, well, the way we do it's better than the church down the street. Or we can think, you know, we can just start coming, do our three to five songs, put our money in the basket, listen to the sermon, go home, wash, rinse, repeat. And your heart can be a million miles away from God. And we got to be careful of that, every single one of us. You can be a pastor, you can be a worship leader, you can be a a youth minister, you can offer service to God, you can be involved in the church, and you cannot be actually offering worship to God that's in the spirit. You can just be going through the motions. And so these kind of statements and these kind of sermons are intended, I think, to do a heart check. A heart check. Isaiah, man, he was heavy. You guys read Isaiah? Like the way Isaiah taught, God talked to the people through Isaiah. He says this in chapter 19 or somewhere in there. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. You know how easy it is to slip into that, guys? To just stand and watch the worship team worship and sing the songs, mouth them, but your heart is a million miles. You know how easy it is to do that? He says in chapter 1, again, back to the Isaiah example, he says, stop bringing your sacrifices. I'm over it. That's the Jason Beale version. 
I'm sick and tired of your stupid offerings because you bring them and you bring them and you bring them. You look so religious. You're just hypocrites. Your, your heart's a million miles from me. You have no desire to live godly. You have no desire to be with me in private. You have no desire to worship me. This is just, I don't know what this is. You think you're earning points with me or it's a show or something. He rings them up. Guys, we need to be careful of that. We got to be careful that we don't turn Christianity to just churchianity and just become professional churchgoers and not worship God from our heart. There's a problem to me when people have no desire to go to a prayer meeting or no desire to worship or no desire to sing and stroll into the worship service late and unrespond. That, that to me, I, I go, that's, I don't want to even bring you into it. I'll just say, in my heart, I got to check myself and go, whoa, why am I doing this at all? I want to give God something real. I want to connect with him. I don't want to just go through the motions. Anybody with me on that? I, am t- I don't want to go through the motions. I'm capable of that. I've done that. I, I tend to go back to that. I've got to guard against that. Well, not only in spirit, and we could go on and on and on, but the main thing I just want us to grab from this is that to worship in spirit starts with being born of the spirit and then engaging in a spiritual way in the way that we express our worship to God. But it's also in truth. In truth. Again, back to the Samaritan story real quick. Um, one of the big issues with the Samaritan thing, their whole religious thing, was that they had kind of picked the things they liked from Judaism but left out the things they didn't. God was very clear when he said, this is how you worship me in the Old Covenant. You go to this place at this time with these festivals and these kinds of sacrifices. These people are the priests. These people are not the priests. So this is how you do it. Well, the Samaritans were like, well, we don't like those portions of the scriptures, so we'll get rid of those. We do like those, but we don't like the way they are, so we'll tweak those a little bit. And we'll kind of make our own priests. And they just kind of buffet-styled the whole thing and kind of came up with their own form of religiousness. And, and Jesus addressed it. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm introducing something new, but just for the record, yeah, the Jews were right. You were wrong. You weren't doing it right. You're doing it wrong. And guys, when we come to worship, Yes, we got to be in the Spirit and of the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Yes, spiritually engaged for sure. But we also need to be absolutely 100% worshiping, grounded in the truth. Amen? Because it's easy to get all the Spirit flowing and then just go left field when it comes to truth. I mean, you know the culture that we're in right now. It is very cool. It is very in right now to be very spiritual. And you can talk about spiritual things. But don't talk about truth. Oh, truth, what's true for you might not be true for me. Well, then, that, then we're not talking about what's actually true then, are we? Truth isn't relative. Two plus two doesn't change. It's always seven, you know. Just kidding. It's five. Um, four. We've got to be grounded in truth. We can't just come to God any old way that we please or make God into some God that we want him to be. We have to come to God on his terms. That, doesn't, that goes cross-grain with our whole culture, our whole um, vibe right now as a people because the whole culture right now just resists any kind of authority or any kind of like this is the way it is and this is the way it isn't. But I'll tell you what, God is basically saying, you come to me on my terms and you worship me for who I am. When we worship God, we're not worshiping who we want him to be or we'd like him to be or whatever. We come to him for who he is, the truth of who he is, the truth of what he's done, the truth of what he says about sin, the truth of what he says about salvation, the truth about what he says about his character. Does that make sense? We have to come grounded in what's real and what's true about God, not whatever we want it to be or make up to be. Well, how do we know what's true? How do we find out what's true? I'm really glad you asked that. It's called uh, the Bible. The Bible. The Word of God. You know that that's why we're doing this. We're studying the Word of God. Gee, how do you know the Word of God is true? Because it's true. It's been tested by greater minds than you and I put together. It has stood the test of time. Jesus said this. He said, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your Word is truth. This is what's true. If you want to know the truth about God, you've got to know the Word of God. And if you want to know what God's like, you go to the Word of God, and ultimately you look at Jesus Christ because He's the living Word of God. But this is where we find truth, and this is where we have to be grounded. And listen, I'll tell you, to the degree that you understand, know, and revel in the truth of who God is will be to the degree of the depth of your spiritual worship. 
Think about that. See, some people are like, I'm not just really into Bible study. I just want to worship in the spirit. And they're doing laps around the place and swinging from chandeliers and gold that's come down. Listen, without the study of God's word, you will have a shallow worship experience, in my opinion. Because you've got to know the truth about the one you're worshiping. And the way that you know the truth about the one you're worshiping is through the study of the word of God. Amen? Now, having said that, we've got to be careful. We're a church-heavy, or excuse me, a a word-heavy church. And I would rather be a word-heavy church any day of the week. And we live in a, in, a, in a culture right now where there's so much access and so many great teachers and we can, we can just take in Bible studies. I listen to probably four or five or six podcasts every week of Bible studies. I'm taking in Bible study. I love the truth of God's word. And that's great, but we got to be careful. Because some people are like, I'm just not into Bible study. I just want to be about the spirit, bro. And other people are like, worship's dumb. I just want to know what the truth is. And the danger there is to just take in the truth, take in the truth, take in the truth, and now you've turned Christianity and everything else into some cerebral experience where all churches is a lecture, and you kind of get your intellect tingled a little bit, and like, oh, that's a good truth, and you write that down. But listen, truth that doesn't lead us to worship is like dead truth. Did you know the Bible is not the end? The Bible is the means. The end is of all of this, is worship. Does that make sense? We don't study the Bible just to study the Bible. And you know me. I study the Bible. I love the Bible. I'm not, I have to do this qualifier because I love the Bible so much. But if all we do is study the Bible and it never drives us to our knees in passionate lifestyle of worship, we're missing the point. Jesus said this, John chapter 5. He says to the guys who knew the Bible more than anybody, we always give the Pharisees a hard time, but guys, they, they knew the Bible. They were the conservatives of the day. And he says to them, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but these are they that testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. He's saying life's not found in just the Bible. Life's found in the one the Bible's talking about, me. Amen? So we've got to be careful on both ends. It's not either or, it's both and. There's got to be that balance where we're grounding ourselves in truth. We're hungry for the truth. But as we take in the truth, it's driving us to a passionate worship, spiritual connection in our expression of worship to Jesus. Amen? That's the winning combination. That's what God's after. He wants both. And we got we to gotta find that balance. And, and guys... You know, the, the tendency can be to, you know, based on our personality or the way we're wired or whatever, we can kind of lean one way or the other, and that's fine. But, man, we got to strive to strike that balance. And, and, and I want to say this, too, just a little bit off my notes and from my heart is, is, do you have a heart to worship at all? Can we just ask that question right now? Do you even want to worship? Because if you don't, something's wrong. Something's wrong in your relationship because when you catch the reality of how wretchedly sinful and bad you are, but how passionately God loves you and he gave himself to die for you and raised from the dead and has wiped away all your sins and never holds them against you ever again and you are white and pure and clean in his eyes and he's put his Holy Spirit in you and he invites you into this relationship. If you kind of go, eh, about that, something's wrong. We we need to have hearts that want to worship God and if that's not there, we gotta start there and say, God, you need to revive that in my heart. Something's wrong with my relationship with you. But as we get that right with God, Man, I, I pray that as God is seeking for worshipers, he's finding them here. Amen? You know, worship has got to be the priority. It's got to be the priority. You know, one of the other traps that we can fall into is, I'm getting ready to close here, but as we, one of the traps we can fall into in, in churchianity is emphasizing and overemphasizing work over worship. Because there's so much work to be done. Good work. 
There's so many needs to be met. There's so much work to be done, whether it's in the church or on the mission field. There's so much to do. There's no end to the need. And there are those who say, well, yeah, worship, worship, worship. That's not practical. It's about work. We got to get the job done. Let's get out there and hit the street. And I'm all for that. We do need to. But you need to understand something. Worship trumps work. Worship comes before work. And if we're ever actually going to do any work for the kingdom of God that's of any value, we need to first be men and women that prioritize worship in our lives. You know, there's the, the classic story, Mary and Martha, Luke chapter 10. I'll just real quick, real quick. Jesus is at their house for dinner, which that's a pretty cool work, right? Like, how are you serving? Jesus is coming to my house for dinner. That's a good one. And evidently at one point they're both just sitting there listening to what he has to say, but Martha gets up, she's cooking, da 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 and you know, she's cooking for dinner for Jesus. That's valid, right? That's, a, that's good. She's cooking dinner for Jesus, but she notices that Mary hasn't come and joined her in the kitchen. She keeps looking back like, what is that girl doing? Girl, get in here, you know, like whatever. And she's like, Jesus, tell Mary to get up, stop wasting. She, this is me adding it. It doesn't say this, but this is me reading into it a little bit, I confess. Tell Mary to stop wasting time sitting at your feet and come do something that's practical. Isn't that kind of what she's saying? Martha, Martha, you're busy. You're cumbered about with much serving. Literally means you're overoccupied with serving me. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. I am not going to take this moment away because sitting at my feet, Martha, is more important than being busy cooking me dinner. As great of a thing as that is, it's more important to sit. We've got to get that into our heads, into our hearts, or else we just become a bunch of busy bees. We're serving God and serving God. How do you know you're serving God but it's stopped being worshipped? You're frustrated with all the other servants. Why isn't anybody helping me? Where is everybody? Well, that's true. She did need help, and maybe that's a valid point. But the fact that you're all irate about it, it just shows that worship has lost its priority in your heart. Worship's got to be first. And you know, really, when worship's first, you're actually more productive for the kingdom of God. Did you know that? Because when you sit in worship and you prioritize that early in the morning or however you do it, like when you have heard from God first and you've worshiped him privately, when you go out and serve, now you're serving with purpose. You're more focused. You're doing the things that God wants you to do instead of just scrambling. Does that make sense? And the stuff that you're doing has eternal value. This is, okay, last quote, and we're done with this, but this is, man, this just kicked me in the gut when I read this this week. Again, A.W. Tozer, he says, a worshiper can work with eternal quality in his work, but a worker who doesn't worship is only piling up wood, hay, and stubble for the time when God sets the world on fire. You know, in other words, a worshiper who works, now their work has eternal value and there's focus and there's drive and he's doing it as under the Lord, she's doing it as under the Lord and there's eternal value. That counts in heaven. But somebody who's just a worker, 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 worker and it's never worship, Okay, you're doing a lot of work, but really you're just piling up wood, hay, and stubble for the day of judgment. It's a heavy statement. Tozer said it. Not me. But I think it's true. Okay, let's, let's just wrap this up, you guys. And um, You know, I got the sense first service, and I get the sense right now, preaching right now. There's almost like a heaviness. And, and, I'm, and I'm wondering why that is. Like, it's not, this isn't like a condemning hard thing. But here, here's what I think it is. I think the Holy Spirit is touching some of our hearts right now. I think this is touching a nerve. I think it's one of those, I know it has been for me, one of those sermons that it's kind of a gut check. Where am I at? Have I turned church into some religious thing and while uptight we have to do it this way and have to sing hymns or we can't do sing hymns or we have music this kind of music am i all worried about procedure and place and all that is my heart far removed from god have i become total cerebral mode i don't know i'm capable of all those things but let's hear the words of jesus when he says true worshipers just worship in spirit free and in truth, 
And my Father is looking, no, seeking those kind of worshipers. So if the Father, and he is, is seeking for those kind of worshipers, what does he find when he sees you? And what does he find when he sees me? And what does he find when he sees Calvary Chapel North Shore? Have we just become good at doing church? Or do we have a room full of worshipers? And that's a piercing question. But we got to ask it. Because Jesus doesn't mince words and he doesn't waste words. And guys, I think for a lot of us, we are missing out on what God intended. And we are invited into a, a way of worshiping that is so good and so free. We are, we are invited into a way of serving that is so wonderful and free and limitless in some ways. Are you a worshiper in spirit and truth? Let's have the worship team come up and, and why don't we all stand together for a moment and let's pray. Let's all stand together. Father, we come before you today and I am just so, again, rattled in a good way by what you've said here. I am so thankful that it's not about us having to go at a certain time of the year to a certain location and bring these kinds of, I'm so glad you have freed us from those kind of regulations and formalities and thank you, Jesus. And Lord, forgive us when we've gone back to those kind of things and gotten so rigid. And forgive us for disconnecting our heart from you. Forgive us for coming to church and checking Facebook during worship and not being engaged and tuned out, Lord, and not that this is the only way to worship you, Lord, but it's a way, and I pray that we would always strive to worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord. Rekindle our hearts to just connect with you in that way. Give us a passion for the truth, Lord, and may the truth of your word just melt our hearts and drive us, and like the natural response be to just throw our hands in the air and weep and just praise you and Take us deeper in this thing of worshiping in spirit and in truth, Lord. May we have that balance as a church. May we be solid in the word of God, but may we be passionate in our praise. We love you, Lord. We don't want to be, we don't want to be on the outside looking in, Lord. We, we want to be right in the middle of what you intended. We love you, Jesus. In the privacy of your own heart right now, as I just wrap up, you know, and this may not have hit everybody. That's cool. But if, if the Lord maybe touched your heart today and you say, you know, maybe for some of you it's like, you know, I used to be like that. Why don't you come back? Now worship has become so dull. Well, it's not the worship leader's fault. Why don't you repent? Why don't you turn back? Man, I've gotten out of the Word. I haven't read my Bible in a month. Oh, man, you're invited. Get back into the Word. There's no condemnation. Just start up again. Man, we, this is not some thing where Jesus is wagging his finger. He's motioning with his hand. Come on in. Come closer. Let's go back to this. So if you need to do business with the Lord, and I invite you, you know, in these moments, if you want to kneel down, if you want to stand, if you want to sit, if you want to raise your hands, I'll be up here, you know, a couple of us, you want to pray, whatever, but let's just take a few minutes in this last song to respond and talk to God about this. Do business with the Lord. And I pray when he looks down at Calvary Chapel North Shore, it's always a room full of people that are worshipers in spirit and in truth, even when we're not here. Amen?